Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. Um, I feel like I say this just about every time I get up to preach, but I really do mean it. It is such an immense privilege to share the Word with you, to be able to come and just show you what God's Word says. And, and really, that's sometimes overwhelming, other times um, just very humbling, but all the, all the same, it's, it's just such a blessing. So thank you for that privilege. Um, I'm looking forward to it uh, today. I just want to start off by, by you know, asking you, or maybe not asking you, but just there's the phenomena that most of us are familiar with, uh, and it's a phenomena that's really new. Like when I say really new, it's about 10 years old, if that. Uh, it's called social media. How many of you have heard of social media? Okay. A few of you? Okay. So social media has uh, so much of an upside. So much of our world has changed because of it, and in a good way. Social media has actually been able to enable folks to communicate in ways they never have before, to be able to share things they never have before, um, and to do it literally just like that. Well, the other interesting thing, or another interesting about so, an interesting thing about social media, is the fact that there are cues, I guess, that, that we take from social media, whether we think we do or not. One of them is that when we portray ourselves, we should portray ourselves in the best light possible. So have you ever noticed that almost everyone looks beautiful? And, and all the time, even the most mundane activity, you know, the lighting is just so, and the atmosphere is just so, and I don't know, maybe you're like the anti-perfection social media poster. But it just seems like, for many, it's, it's like nothing ever goes wrong in their life. I mean, everything is perfect, or everything is beautiful, and they always look just so, and their hair falls just that certain way, and their children are always, you know, have clean teeth, and nothing on their face, and, and everything is just, just wonderful. You know, as silly as that sounds, you know, and we might kind of laugh at fake book, um, there's, a, there's a reality... Uh, that kind of bleeds over into the writing of Scripture in a certain way. There's a reality of that, that, that when the writers of Scripture wrote what they wrote, and when people were reading them and being critical of them, a lot of times one of the criticisms that was given was that this is almost too good to be true. And so when you have a passage like, for example, Acts 15, where there's a major controversy in the church, and you have these Jews and you have these Gentiles coming together. And this is not a small deal of what they're talking about. And how they seemingly reach a unanimous decision over a really controversial thing. But everybody's in agreement. And everybody's happy about it. I mean, name one organization you've ever been a part of where that's taken place. Where there was something very strongly held to parties with very opposing viewpoints on them come together and everyone leaves, first of all, in agreement, and second of all, happy about that agreement. Okay? That doesn't happen. And yet, here we have our church history in Acts playing itself out, and yeah, there's some bumps along the road, but man, things seem to be going swimmingly, even within the body of Christ. And if Acts 15 ended at, oh, about verse 35, we might think that. But can I tell you, verses 36 through 41, and then as we get a little bit further into the book of Acts, really help to show that this whole thing called Christianity, what first century and second century believers called the way, wasn't always the easy way. And it wasn't always the beautiful way. In fact, what we're going to see here on the heels of one of the greatest points of church unity was actually a point of disunity. And what do we as Christians make of disunity when it takes place in the church? And not just between rascals, but between really godly people. 
And then going a step further, what are we to make of it when we have this influx of new believers and older believers, and then we have new environments, and our leadership desires us to perhaps give up things that we don't have to give up, or perhaps to do things that, frankly, we're not really willing to do or wanting to do. And there's other points of disagreement. What do we make of that? Well, fortunately, we get to read what happens. We get to see how this plays out. And also, fortunately, we have the end of the story. I mean, we know how this thing ends. And so since we know how it ends, there's a sense to where we can kind of wrap it up in a bow and we can go home and feel good about ourselves when our heads hit the pillow. But I'm here to tell you that as you have godly people interact with godly people, there will be points in time where you are very uncomfortable with those godly people. Because having the same doctrine, even having the same philosophy, you may come about to a very different application than another believer. So what do we do with that? Leave? Stay? Get better? Argue? What do we do? And how does God work all that out? Well, He does, and we know that He does. But what I want to leave with you today, really in answering that question and seeing how this plays out, is that saints who are growing in grace, and that's what we're assuming here, saints who are growing in grace must trust God, but they also must trust each other. Saints who are growing in grace must trust God, but they also must trust each other. Okay, so let's read. You know, the past several weeks that I've preached in Acts, I've had these passages that are like 40 verses long. Today, I only have like 10 verses, which is wonderful. It doesn't mean I'm going to talk any less. It just means that I can actually read through all of them. Okay, so let's start reading in verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they... that I'm sorry. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So first of all, We'll read chapter 16, verses 1 through 5 in just a moment. But I want us to look at this first section. Okay, this really could be two different sermons, but I only get one more shot. You know, next week Pastor Kent gets to preach, and he has to start at, at verse 6. You know, that's what he was assigned. So I need to get this in, and we're going to get them both in, and you're going to learn a lot and hopefully change and become more like Jesus at the end of this. Okay? So first of all, as we look at this passage, we need to see that disagreements among obedient brothers will provide opportunity. Disagreements among obedient brothers will provide opportunity to test just how much we trust God and how much we trust other saints. Disagreements between obedient brothers, we can say sisters as well, will give us the opportunity to test us to see how much we really trust God and how much we trust those saints. So as we're looking at this, you have a division between Paul and Barnabas. But up to this point, the two of them partners together. The first missions trip, going out from Antioch. Acts chapter 13 and 14, right? Going to a number of different places, seeing God bless, seeing the two of them work with one another. Seeing the two of them being sent by the church in Antioch in chapter 15 down to Jerusalem and having the two of them work together and being able to present what God was doing and how He was saving Gentiles and telling these Jewish Christians in Jerusalem where the Gospel had first gone out what God was doing. And they were walking in step with one another in like agreement with one another. Except there's something that comes up with John Mark. 
Now, back in Acts chapter 13, there, you really don't learn much about John Mark. I mean, he, you, you know that as they're going along the way in their trip, after they leave Cyprus, and by the way, had we not electrical issues, I was going to show you the maps, you know, of where they're going and everything. And if you want to, just turn to the back of your Bible and look for Paul's first missionary journey and follow the arrows, okay? So, as Paul left Antioch with Barnabas, they go to Cyprus, that island. All right, and then they share the gospel there, and then they head up to the Galatian area where they're starting to minister in Iconium, and then eventually Lystra and Derby. Okay, and as they're doing that, so you have Paul and Barnabas ministering with one another, and evidently when they left Cyrus to head up to that Galatian area, John Mark decided he didn't want to go, and we don't know why, but we do know that Paul felt like he abandoned them. And we read that in verse eight, uh, 38. Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along because he deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. You also have to keep in mind that after they go to Pamphylia, that's when things really started to ramp up from a persecution standpoint. So there was Paul being stoned, remember? In Lystra, there was some antagonism where the, uh, the, the, the Jewish uh, rejectors of Christ were following them from town to town. Well, Mark had gone home, back to Jerusalem, back to Peter, and hadn't been with them during that time. And so now, they're back. Paul says, hey Barnabas, let's go back and visit those churches. Barnabas is in agreement. And wants to bring along John Mark. So who was right? And I think a lot of times we look at a passage like this and say, who's right? And frankly, you could vouch for either guy, I guess. Some commentators uh, are, are very strong saying Paul was in the right here. Paul was the apostle. Right? Paul, an apostle. Remember, you know, in his letters to these churches, he always starts his letters with Paul, an apostle. Right? He's, he's basically showing his authority. This is someone who received the message from Jesus Firsthand, saw the resurrected Lord. Barnabas, not so much. And so Paul, by virtue of you know just saying, hey, you know, I don't think we should, Barnabas should have stepped right in line and gone. You know, some would say that. Some would also say that, well, when you look at the passage here, especially when you look at verse 40, Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. So this church in Antioch gives Paul their blessing. We don't see that about Barnabas. So maybe Barnabas was in the wrong. Maybe Paul was in the right. But then another could say, well, I don't know, maybe Barnabas is in the right. Because after all, I mean, look what he's trying to do. He's trying to restore a brother who is basically useless. I mean, what's he doing? He's bringing him alongside. And did he ever become useful? The answer is yes, quite useful. I mean, we have evidence not only of you know, the second gospel, named after the writer, Mark. But we also have the testimony of Paul himself at the very end of his ministry. In 2 Timothy 4 and verse 11, Paul's lamenting that many, if not all, had left him, save Luke and Mark. And in fact, he says, send Mark because he is useful to me in the ministry. So, if Barnabas hadn't brought Mark along, you know, he could have still been sitting at home in his parents' basement playing Fortnite for four hours a night, right? No. Barnabas brings him along. And he's, so who's right? Who's right? Well, whatever things are true, we're told in Philippians 4.8, what we do know is that both of these men, Barnabas and Paul, had spotless reputations with the church. Neither one of them had character flaws that we know of. Barnabas in particular wanted... To restore a brother back to use. He loved this brother. And oh, by the way, I don't think the geographical details are to be ignored here. Because why were they going out in the first place? Well, it says in verse 36, After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brother in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord, and see how they are. So when they have this disagreement, where does Barnabas go? 
Well, in verse 39, it says, And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. Why is that significant? It's significant because that was the first place that Paul and Barnabas went in their first missionary journey. So Barnabas is doing what Paul asked them to do. In the sense that, hey, let's go visit the churches. That's what Barnabas is doing. And he's taking John Mark with him. And where does Paul go? But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed to the Lord by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And then we go into verse 1 of chapter 16. Paul came to Derby and Lystra. So if I had a map up here, or if you're looking in the back of your Bibles at those maps, Paul's second missionary journey, you see an arrow actually going almost in the opposite direction of where he went the first time. You see, you have from Antioch, Barnabas and John Mark going to Cyprus, but then you have Paul and Silas going north and actually going from east to west backwards the way they went before in the first trip, going to Lystra and Derby. You see, every commentator that I read on this passage says, yes, there's a disagreement, but, and here's the silver lining, now you have two mission teams instead of just one. Now you have two groups of saints going out, visiting, and strengthening these churches. And isn't that good? To which we would say, amen. However, did they feel good? I mean, if you were to ask Barnabas, and you were to ask Paul, how do you feel about the fact that you're now going a different way than your partner is going? And in fact, in verse 39, it says, there occurred such a sharp disagreement. That same language is used at the beginning of chapter 15, in verse 2, and when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate, and that great dissension and debate was about the Judaizers and about saying that these Gentile believers needed to be circumcised. I mean, that's debate that could be resolved and was resolved. And we praise the Lord for it, and everyone's in unity. And they all leave Jerusalem rejoicing and spreading the good news to all these churches. But then there's another great dissension, except. <coughs> it actually results in two saints, two obedient saints, two God-fearing saints going in two different directions. What do we make of this? Is it just kind of a, you know, que sera, sera? It's just going to happen. People are people. Maybe they just have really strong personalities. And hey, don't we see that in church? You know, some people, they just, man, I just don't, I just don't click with them. Matter of fact, when we get together, we just kind of butt heads. So I just, uh, steer clear. I mean, is that the lesson we take from this? Good men differ. And if you know a good man or a good woman in here and you differ, well, that's just the way it's going to be. I don't see that in this passage. I see that what's being described, to be sure, but what I don't see is this sense of, you know what, you're just not going to get along with people. What I do see primarily is that God will have the gospel go forward even when we human beings don't do it the best way. The gospel still goes forward. We see that um, at the end of verse 41, the strength of the churches were being strengthened, right? After Paul and Silas leave. We don't know much really about Barnabas anymore. We don't know how their trip went. We do know where Paul and Silas go. So how can... Two people who are walking with the Lord then come to such strong disagreement. And what then do we include? What's the so what for you and me? Okay? Well, I think the first question we need to ask is this. When we are faced with disagreement, when we, hopefully we're in obedience to the Lord, and we self-examine, we don't see any glaring spiritual weaknesses, and we look at that person, and we don't see any glaring spiritual weaknesses in them, and we need to ask ourselves our question, is this disagreement based on doctrine? Or is it based on the application of shared or agreed upon doctrine? I mean, is this a doctrinal dispute? First of all, is it a doctrinal dispute that they're having? Paul and Barnabas? No, it's not. It's about who should come with them or who shouldn't come with them. 
Was John Mark qualified to come? Barnabas says, yes. Paul says, no. That's not doctrine. That's application. That's wisdom, perhaps. But it's not doctrine. Okay? So is the disagreement that we see in our own, perhaps, lives, is it based on doctrine? Or is it based on the application of shared or agreed upon doctrine? And that has to be our starting point. What is our point of agreement? If this person that I'm facing a disagreement with is in agreement on core doctrine, then we have something to build upon. We have a foundation to build upon. If not, then let's go to the Scriptures and and let's articulate what that doctrine is. What is it? And how can I learn? Okay. The second question I have is, is it still a source of contention after this decision is made, perhaps? Is it still a source of contention months or years down the road? Well, what do you mean by that? Well, here's what I mean. Neither party that I know of, Paul nor Barnabas, had the right, nor did they take advantage of the opportunity to say, I told you so. I mean, Barnabas could have said to Paul, I told you so. Why? Because, I mean, John Mark ended up great. You know, and then Paul could have been waiting for the opportunity for John Mark to slip up and then say, see, told you so. You see, this disagreement wasn't about, I'm right, you're wrong. This disagreement, and really our disagreements, when we're talking about obedient brothers and sisters in Christ, is never about an I'm right and you're wrong. It's never about that. Because at the end of the day, when we have this mentality, we're revealing our pride. I need to be right. And can I take this a step further? If we approach disagreement with a sense of I need to be right, we're actually really kind of showing just how insecure we are. They say we're insecure because it's so important that we know that they know that we are right and they are wrong. So we are going to go to lengths to make sure that they know that we know that they know they're wrong. (laughs) And I am right. I told you so. Where do we see these disagreements taking place? Okay, Probably the first place, maybe the most obvious place, is in the home. Especially as we're dealing with other sinners like me and my spouse or my children or you and your spouse and your children, especially as your children progress from child to adult and they start to make decisions. And yes, their trajectory is in a good direction. They are oriented in a right way. But now they're making decisions on careers that maybe you're not comfortable with. Maybe they're making decisions on spouses that maybe you're not comfortable with. Boyfriends, girlfriends. Maybe they're making decisions on where they should move. Where they should go to church, even. Are they walking with the Lord? Yeah, we'd say that. But we are in sharp disagreement about that issue. So what do we do? What about someone we're discipling? You know, I think of a circumstance where I had the opportunity to disciple a young man starting in the 7th, 8th grade. He was in my youth group. He was growing up and um, went off to college, went to college in Kansas City, and uh, came back, and he had several job interviews here, and, and we maintained really close contact all throughout high school and college. And it was a blessing to be able to minister to him. And so he's talking about you know, his opportunities for jobs, and there was a job that came up in Kansas City, and, and frankly... You know, just knowing what I knew, I really wasn't crazy about it. Because first and foremost, there wasn't a solid church there. I knew the church that he was going to, and I was just like, you know, so-and-so, you would be so much of a blessing here. And I've been praying that God would redirect you here, because I see lots of opportunity. And I'm just praying, just talking with him, and, and, and he moved to Kansas City. And there was part of me that's like, was it a doctrinal disagreement? No. And I praise the Lord he, that he never came back and told me, I told you so. Because looking at it now, having time gone by, he was able to be with his mother as she passed away, which was a blessing for him and for her. 
He was able to not only find a job, but actually be able to connect to a solid church. And in that time, actually connect with the girl who would be his future spouse. Now, he could come back and say, Pastor Mike, remember how you told me to stay here? Look at all that God's done by me making this decision. I praise the Lord he didn't do that. You know, and had he messed up, you know, okay. And I think that sometimes we have to think, okay, so what's worst case scenario? I mean, let's say they blow it. You know, let's say our kids or the person I'm discipling or the person that I'm really close to that they're walking, we think they're walking in obedience. Let's say, let's say they make that decision and they blow it. Okay? So I was thinking about this. All right, so how does this fall out for us? Well, think about how Christ felt when he's hanging on the cross. And I, I ask that question, or I say, make that statement, what do you think Christ felt when he was hanging from the cross and out of all the disciples that followed him and he invested in saw only John? You think there was shame and embarrassment? You know, it says in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, thinking little of or despising the shame. I mean, honestly, what type of human leader gives himself as a martyr and has only one of his band of disciples there? At some level, Jesus can't look and think, I blew it. Because they blew it. No. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, has we done what we can when we're in this position, and we're prayerfully considering, God, what would you have me to do? How would you help me influence this individual, be it a family member or a close friend or, or whomever, this person that by and large is walking with the Lord, but we're just in disagreement with, then how would you want me, or have I done what I can to point them in a biblical direction? Because if I can say I've done that, then what I need to do now is trust in God. Trust in God. Philippians 1.6. Some of you can quote this. He who began a good work in you will what? Will perform it. Will complete it. Right? End of Jude. Verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and preserve you until the day of his appearing. That's a promise. Both of those are promises. And yet, many times we think... Maybe not we think. Many times we act as if those promises only apply to those who do exactly what we want them to do and look exactly like us. Yes, of course God will perform them, perform that good work in them. Why? Because they're doing everything I want them to. That's not faith. It really isn't. I mean, there's... What is faith? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And there are times where when you've made that investment, perhaps in that child or that disciple or whomever, and they seem to be going in a different direction, and by and large they're walking with the Lord, but that decision is like, uh, you're, you're really angst-ridden about it, and, and you don't trust the Lord because you're trusting in the circumstances. And maybe, just maybe, and I have to look in the mirror on this one when it comes to me as a parent, Maybe, just maybe, I'm afraid of what people might think when my kids or the person I'm discipling goes awry. What are they going to think of me? What are they going to think of me? Well, what kind of parent will let their kid X, Y, Z do that? Or, or, I thought you were discipling them. Now they're doing this. At the end of the day, we trust the Lord. And if we trust the Lord and His promises, then guess what? That person who we are investing in, who we've invested in, that person who seems to have their sails set in the right direction, those promises apply to that person. So it's more than just saying, saying as we look at them, yes, I trust the Lord. It's also saying, I trust you. Why? Because I trust the promises of the Lord. I don't think that's a statement of naivete. I think it's a matter of fact that if God keeps His promises and He's going to keep them for me, He's going to keep them for that saint as well. Okay? So, as we grow in grace, we trust God 
and we trust saints who are also trusting in God. Okay? And by the way, just from a practical standpoint, this also shows how we need the body of believers. Because getting an outside perspective on circumstances from those who are older and wiser, certainly, and, and those are perhaps who are familiar with our own families or are familiar with the person we're discipling, you know, talking to other bodies of believers, I can't tell you how much some of you have been an encouragement to me just in my own family, where I'm seeing things and I see it pretty raw. And then I hear some of you say, oh, I can't tell you how much of a blessing so-and-so was, or this daughter was, or your wife was, or whatever. It's like, Praise the Lord. Because it's really easy sometimes, especially when you see something negative or you have that disagreement, to just have these on, the blinders. And you miss out maybe on what God's doing. And so we have the body of believers who can come and encourage us and sometimes can correct us and even rebuke us. Amen. If necessary, remind us that God's in control and that we should trust Him and trust Him to change his children into little Christs. That's what Christians are in the first place. So as we end chapter 15 with one missions team dividing into two, we see chapter 16 beginning with an event that could have just as easily created division. I mean, if bringing a partner along would create division, how about circumcision? Could that cause some division? Well, let's read and see. Acts 16, verse 1. Paul came to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in these parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering, uh, the, delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. If you're doing this chapter on your Read Through the Bible in a Year program, you can very easily breeze through verses 1 through 5. But there are some big things going on. You have the start of Paul's second missions trip, as it were, but you have Timothy being added. And we know Timothy. He's a convert from the cities of Lystra and Derbe. This is, remember, where Barnabas and Paul were worshipped as gods? So Timothy, coming from a spiritually mixed family where his father was a Greek and his mother was a Jew. And clearly he didn't identify with the Jewish portion of it, hence verse 3. Paul wanted this man to go with him and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews were in those parts. If he openly identified himself as a Jew, he would have been circumcised and this wouldn't have been an issue. But on the heels of Acts chapter 15, where we have an entire council devoted to whether or not Gentile Christians needed to go through this, why do we have this here? I mean, think about it. Everything that happens in Acts 15. And the joy that's brought to everybody. And then you have Acts 16. And you read that? That's like a, huh? What's going on? Isn't Paul... I mean, is he being inconsistent here? And the answer is no. Paul's consideration was for the synagogues that he would teach in. Remember, Paul's MO. He would go to a place and he'd start proclaiming the gospel to the Jews, Right? And he would start in the synagogue. Now imagine Paul and Silas, a Jew from Jerusalem, going, and then you have Timothy, one who is openly identifying as a Gentile. What type of reception would they have in that synagogue? Well, a very poor one. And it says as much in verse 3, because of the Jews were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. But wait a second. I thought this whole Jerusalem Council thing made this point moot. He didn't have to do it. And to add to that, we don't have the time, but if you were to go to Galatians chapter 2, Paul, on one trip to Jerusalem, took a Greek believer named Titus. And when he took Titus to Jerusalem, oh, this is Jerusalem, by the way, he insisted that Titus not be circumcised. Okay, so he takes Timothy and says, be circumcised. But earlier on, he takes Titus and says, don't be circumcised. What's going on? What do we do? 
I mean, is Paul being inconsistent? And the answer is, it depends. First of all, he's not. You see, Titus, in Galatians chapter 2, was a full-blooded Gentile. And if he were to be circumcised, it would have brought credence to those Judaizers who said, aha, in order to really be saved, you have to be circumcised. And that was not the message that Paul wanted to bring to those Judaizers. So he says, here's Titus, he's a Greek. And he's saved just like you and me. Praise the Lord. And yet, he has Timothy, who's part Jewish, part Greek. And being circumcised would have taken away a distraction to the Jews that they were trying to reach for the gospel. It would have communicated a personal sacrifice for the souls. You think about that. Here's Timothy. And oh, by the way, what message are they carrying? Look at verse 4 and 5. Now, while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. What are those messages? That for if you're a Gentile believer, abstain from meat offered to idols, abstain from things strangled, abstain from you know, things in their blood, and then don't commit sexual immorality. But the whole thing about needing to be circumcised, don't worry about that. You don't have to do that. Okay. And then that's the message they're carrying. But then you have Timothy who openly professes that this is something he's willing to do and does it. Why? Because he cares about the souls he's about to minister to. He cares about them. He knows it's going to mean a lot to them. And so my second point for tonight is forfeiting our, and I use air quotes here for those of you who are listening to audio, Forfeiting our rights for the gospel's sake will provide opportunity to test just how much we trust in God and trust other saints. Okay? We talked earlier about how disagreements among obedient brothers will provide opportunity to test just how much we trust in God and other saints. But forfeiting our rights for the gospel's sake will provide an opportunity to test just how much we trust God and trust other saints. You know what Acts 16.3 is? It's Christian liberty. It's Christian liberty. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, let's turn briefly to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. In verse 19, if you understand the context, 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10 are about Paul eating, you know, what do we do with meat offered to idols? What should the church people do? Is it okay? Is it not okay? This whole passage is about Christian liberty. Verse 19 of chapter 9, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I might win the more. To the Jews I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became weak, so that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men, that I may be all me- by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Now this is not Paul being a chameleon Christian. You know what a chameleon is? Mm-hmm. You know, it can change colors and blend into its environment. You know, basically for safety and self-protection. This is Paul recognizing the value of souls. Because that's really what's at the heart of it. It's not his rights. It's their souls. And he sees the value of their souls. And this isn't Paul taking this libertine way of living. I can do whatever I want because, hey, I want those people to get saved. So Paul to the clubs, yeah. So I can get saved. So we can witness to the people in the clubs. So Paul to the wherever, the brothels. Yeah, there's Paul. He's going to win... The prostitutes. There's Paul. There again, just flaunting his liberty. No, 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 no. That's a complete misunderstanding. And in fact, Acts chapter 16, verse 3, really is a picture of Christian liberty. 
It's Timothy doing something he did not have to do. The law did not demand that he be circumcised. But you know what he did? He trusted his leadership. And you think about it. Paul and Barnabas split on account of John Mark. Why didn't Timothy split? But no, he did that. Because he understood Paul's heart for souls and he himself had a heart for souls. We have two Gospels to account for that, don't we? Paul became all things to all men. The principle is to be willing to give up what is comfortable and even permissible for the sake of the souls around you, either to help them see the gospel in you or to help them be encouraged to grow and not stumble. And what's the result? Looking back at Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. So after all this, verse 5, we have this concluding statement. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. Imagine being a Jew. Hearing this former Jewish leader, Paul, well-known persecutor of the Christians, now speaking on behalf of Christ and seeing one of his converts, Timothy, who was part Jew, part Gentile, but well-known, being willing to identify with his fellow countrymen so that they could see his heart for them. Don't you think that would be a powerful accompaniment to the gospel? Absolutely it would. So where does that play out in us? Where does that play out here? Okay. Can I give you one example where that's played out here at Grace Church and Mentor? Okay. It's in the form of this book. Can I just humor me for about six or seven minutes? So, a while back, oh, let's see, I was hired on full-time here 2009. Uh, around 2010, I asked, I, I did some research, and I wanted to be able to buy a hymnal that supplemented what we already had. Okay? And what it was for was there were some newer songs and actually some older texts put to tunes that weren't currently in this hymnal. And I thought, you know what? You know, there were some hymnals really wasn't crazy about. I saw this one. It was small. It fit well with the racks that we had at the time, you know. Um, and frankly, I was, I was really, really impressed with the doctrine of many of the songs in this. In fact, almost all of the songs. It, it was pretty obvious that the editor here, who had put this book together, um, cared a lot about the words that were being sung. Okay? So we went ahead and purchased this. Now... After I purchased it, this is always a, a good thing. It's a, an opportunity for growth. After I purchased it, I came to find out that there are some songs in here that, frankly, have great doctrine, but had an association that I wasn't familiar with at all. In fact, my exposure to almost all of these songs is in the form of the way that we sing them. I mean, like, congregationally. And so... When I was made aware that there are some in here that actually have an association for quite a few in our church that we're not comfortable with leadership, we had to make a decision. Because what we didn't want to do was introduce something that would create confusion. And we wanted to be sensitive to hearts that were growing. Sensitive to people who, frankly, might not see things the exact same way I see them, and I didn't even understand. Because for me, I didn't have that association. But it was more than just one squeaky wheel. It was more than just one person that had an axe to grind about music. There was quite a few. Not people who had axe to grind about music, but people who were sensitive. People who understood that, you know what, there's a context, and frankly, when I... Played in that praise and worship band. This was on our set list almost every time. And, and man, this was, you know. And I'm like, so guess what? For the past about 10 years, there have been some songs that we've sung in here. And there have been others that we haven't. Now, I don't know about you, but I have the privilege of standing behind this box and leading music each week. And sometimes I feel like you're yelling at me because you're singing so loudly. <laughs> I don't I haven't seen 
our worship be hindered, our worship in song be hindered because there have been some songs that I wanted to sing or perhaps maybe others really wanted to sing, but we've just said, you know what, not right now. And in fact, a few weeks ago, I gave an explanation as to kind of why we do what we do just from an introducing song standpoint. You know, where there's some where even in this book, we don't sing because maybe we're not crazy about their theology or maybe there's some associations here that, that, that we're not comfortable with. And so we just don't. But maybe there's a lot of good in here and, and maybe there's a lot of good in here. But you know what? You're not expendable for the good in here. Souls aren't expendable. And so if it means that maybe we don't move at the pace that I wish we moved at, and I'm not saying we do, I'm just using this as hypothetical, then maybe, just maybe, God will honor that and cause us to grow that much more. Because there are souls in this room that have come out of churches where you were told, this is just what we do. If you don't like it, there's the door. And by God's grace, may that never be here. Now listen, that does not mean that the person with the biggest axe to grind or the person who makes the biggest stink or has the ten, most you know, sensitive conscious about everything, that they're going to rule the day. There is a difference between those two things. But what we see here is a willingness to give up what is comfortable or even permissible for the sake of the souls around us. So I don't hold on to my rights. Like, this is my right. There's nothing wrong with this. Show me the verse. What about the souls around you? And boy, if we had time, how many other blanks could we fill in of applications of something like this? Where you may, in God's providence, be transferred somewhere else. You know, your, your job transfers you somewhere else. And you go to a Bible teaching church, people of like faith and like practice. But you know, there's a few things that they do different from what we do here. And maybe there's some applications that we might be not comfortable with. Or maybe there's some applications that we're comfortable with that they're not comfortable with. So, what do we do? Well, we see in Paul a heart for souls. And we see Paul, who's not stomping his feet, nor do we see Timothy stomping his feet saying, this is my right. We see people loving souls. Okay, so with this I close. Um, if you've ever been to a pool or you've ever been to a you know, beach and you have a beach ball, okay, you guys played with a beach ball before? You know, fill it with air, hit it. Okay, so you take a beach ball, you ever taken a beach ball and, and taken it and you forced it underwater and then you let go of it? What happens? You know, it shoots up in the air, right? Okay, that, that beach ball principle. Sometimes when we're demanding with others, especially those who God has given us opportunity to be able to influence from a discipleship or influence to oversee, when we unintentionally be pressuring them, when perhaps as they're walking with the Lord, they're making a decision, and as we're walking with the Lord, we don't see it eye to eye, and we place that like, no, 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 and, and we see them sometimes... If we're not careful, we could kind of be like that pressure on a beach ball, forcing it under the water and perhaps causing a more forceful response than what's necessary. And I think also when we hold on to our rights so rights, air quotes, so tightly, we can feel like the beach ball that's pressed underneath the water. And all we want to do is get out. And neither one of those is really a biblical approach. And neither one we see here in this text. God desires that we must trust Him and other saints who are growing in grace. And when we do, things won't always go our way. When we do, we may have to give up more than the person next to us. And we may feel that we're not being treated fairly. But we will see the value of the souls that God has placed us by. And we will see the gospel continue to go forward when we don't hold on to our rights. This is mine. And when we see that God is working in another person and the Holy Spirit indwells them just like you. And they're growing. And that's a blessing. We have to ask ourselves, do you, I have to ask you, do you trust God? 
And do you trust the work that God is doing in the saints around you? These are the circumstances that will bring those questions to a fore. You know, as I look at this, even in my own life, I'm thinking of, of people where, man, I wish I could go back and do it differently. You know, but okay, so obey today. It's never too late to do right. We hear that a lot, right? Never too late to do right. Um, and, and maybe it's an opportunity for us to reorient our mind in really what matters. Um, according to the Bible, according to sound doctrine, according to the souls and the value of them and seeing them grow. Okay, let's pray. God, thanks so much for this time. Or this is, uh, at least it can be, a really sticky passage from an application standpoint. And we read the story and we understand it in principle. But God, having it play out, it will stretch us. Lord, I pray for those who are raising, not raising, but they're in relationships with adult children. And they're seeing their children, their adult children, make decisions. And Lord, we pray for those who don't know Christ, that they would see Christ in their parents. And that they might be born again. And Lord, we think of those who are born again, perhaps not walking with you. Lord, that they might be able to be drawn back to you by the obedience and by the love and joy that they see in their parents. And Lord, those who are walking with you, may these adult parents be willing to trust you and trust their children and see them flourish. Lord, I think of those who are discipling other believers. And those believers are growing and yet perhaps starting to make decisions that they're not comfortable with, but yet growing. God, give us a trust in the promises of your word. Help us to not be aloof, but at the same time, help us to rest in what your word says. And we'll thank you for what you're going to do. And God, as we are faced sometimes daily with the fact that we have other believers around us, or perhaps unbelievers around us, where our behavior and our choices, though we might have freedom, they are governed at some level by those around us, by the saints we seek to edify, to build up. God, give us joy in that. Don't. May we not be known for being a frustrated conversation. I can say with, with the clear conscience that we are not that now. But Lord, it's possible that we could become that. Keep us from that. Give us the joy in seeing souls saved and changed. Give us the joy in being willing to defer. God, we love you. We love seeing souls saved. We love seeing them change to become more like your son. Would you keep doing that work in our church? We don't want to blow it. We want to end our lives with heads held high as a church that is spreading the glory of your name to our little city here in Northeast Ohio. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.